This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Maylie Evans, sitting in the host's chair this week. On today's programme, the architect William Smalley shares what makes the ideal quiet space with his new book. We visit a new exhibition highlighting the contribution of London's Jewish community within the fashion industry. Plus, we learn why Danish brand Tact is rethinking how we design, build and sell furniture. All that's coming up on Monocle on Design. William Smalley is a London-based architect who has been long drawn to interiors that invite contemplation. His new book, Quiet Spaces, published by Thames and Hudson, showcases the architect's work as well as some of the calming spaces that have inspired him. His own Bloomsbury apartment sits alongside a 16th century villa by Palladio, with interiors in Sri Lanka and Mexico to boot, all captured in photos by Harry Crowder. To reflect on quiet spaces, William visited our studios at Midori House in London to speak with Monocle's design editor and this show's resident host, Nick Manise. He began by asking what led William onto the path of becoming an architect. I wanted to be an architect from about the age of eight. I once came downstairs at home and sitting around the kitchen table one evening with my parents and a guy I'd never met before and I was like, who's he? And I said, oh, this is Robert. He's our architect. He's designing our extension. He unrolled the plans. I just thought that's what I want to do. And then I used to spend all my lunch breaks and games lessons sitting in the, at school designing houses. Underground houses. I went through a phase of designing underground houses. It was interesting because they had no form. So they were just about spaces and the relationship of one space to another. Not that I thought in those terms, age 10. We had this amazing headmaster in our village school, which had like 100 pupils. But, and so I had, I had two years with him and... He was an incredible teacher. You sort of learnt without realising you were learning. Um, And he bought me a copy of the Architectural Review when I was 10 or 11, which I still have, and it's in the book. I always knew, and I always knew I would have my own practice. That Mm -hmm. seemed to me what it was about. And it was about the creation of buildings, not about the practice of architecture. I set the office up solely with the aim of making beautiful spaces and places, and that's what we do. That's a nice way to sort of launch into, uh, I guess, a discussion about this book, Quiet Spaces, which which you've just released. It's really a celebration of, of architecture rather than... A, a celebration of me. Yeah, a celebration of you, yeah. which, which is, thank you, that, that's exactly what I needed. Why approach a book like this? You've got work from other people alongside work of your own. Why bring in others? I didn't really think about it. It just seemed the natural way. I was wanting to write a book for a long time. I, books are my weakness and I... I have a lot of them and ever-expanding collection. And I think it just seemed to me that it would broaden the appeal of the book, of a book, that it shouldn't just be about me. I think I think about architecture as a continuum that all buildings are part of. I don't think in terms of new and old or modern and classical. I'm always looking for the strands that tie buildings together architecturally and for the person who's experiencing them. I'm always looking at other buildings and trying to understand what one can learn from those um, in my own practice. But I think it's as much about what might be interesting for other people to learn. I wanted it to have quite a broad appeal as a book, not to just be sold to other architects, which doesn't particularly hold any interest in me. I think I want it to appeal to anyone with an interest in 
design all the space around them or their own home? I think that's quite important in terms of like architecture isn't just for architects. It goes wrong when it's just for architects. It should always be about everyone and the people who experience it. So tell me about some of the selections in this. I mean, Jeffrey Bauer's uh, house jumped out at me uh, just as a landscape architect and somebody that loves buildings that work with nature. How do you whittle down a a favourite selection, not only of your own buildings, but others as well? The book has eight projects of my own or the work of my studio and eight other projects. And they're quite disparate. And both in time, there's a 16th century Palladio Villa, there are 20th century classics. I just thought about places that have had meaning for me over a long period of time and places that I refer back to and that just are lodged in my sort of architectural memory and places that I wanted to write about and wanted to go back to to photograph. And what, what makes a, a place lodge in your memory? Like, you know, you, you mentioned that villa, we're looking at Villa Saraceno now by Andrea Palladio. What, what, I guess, what lodged that in your brain? I went there for the first time just after I left architecture school. A group of us all got together and um, rented it. And there it was the sense of scale. It's huge. There are plans at the back of the book which are, which are all at the same scale. And so you can compare a giant Palladio Villa to my tiny flat, um, which I, I thought was quite... <laughs> it's very fun. Was, I thought my flat was, wasn't that small, but you see it next to all the others and it looks tiny. It was the sense of scale and of space and this mental space. There was space to think and to be and to breathe. So that was the particular... and. What's been interesting about writing the book has been reflecting on why these places are important and putting that into words, and also seeing those words against Harry Crowder's photography. Putting this into words, thinking about you know why something speaks to you, has this provided any clarity around your own practice and, and what you're doing, this, this process? On the office's website, we have a record section, which is me writing. Often feels that it's just me writing to myself, but it has forced me both to take better photographs because the pictures are full screen on the website and to when I'm at a place and I think, oh, this might be interesting to write about, then why is it interesting? What am I feeling? What am I recording? I think throughout the book on reflecting in these places, I'm almost always trying to record what it feels like to be in them. So you're, you're recording in these spaces. And then I, I guess I also want to ask about the title of the book, quiet spaces as opposed to empty spaces scary spaces like why 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 quiet spaces quiet to me is a good quality i see it less as a subject and more of a state of mind and it came after the event i collated the places that i wanted to be in the book and then i reflected on them and they all seemed to share this sense of quietness quietude um of being right of being calm of having a visual calm it's something i'm endlessly looking for and quite rarely find so when it does happen i'm conscious of it and i wanted to record that how do you get access to these amazing you know these amazing houses and buildings i wrote to each one individually telling them what the project was and why and i think everyone we approached said yes and were unbelievably accommodating gave us the house and let us stay overnight so it would it would typically be me and Harry Crowder, who's photographed all but one of the projects, the other one being by Ellen Binet. So he and I went, and we and everything was shot specifically for the book. So it was quite an undertaking. We flew to Mexico and Sri Lanka and New York, Italy, drove to Cornwall. That was very much part of the project. It would be a, a new recording of spaces. 
Why do you think people were willing to open up their homes to this project? There are two sides. There are my clients and because hopefully they feel proud of and pleased with their spaces. And that was very interesting going back to projects often where the client's been living there for several years and how much nicer and richer the spaces are for their inhabitation. And you'd, often you think it might be the opposite way around, that I would be uncomfortable with the things that they've, they've brought in, but in every case, the place gets better for their inhabitation. For the places that are not by me, I think I just wrote to them honestly with this and just said that your space means something to me and has meant something to me, and, and please could it be in the book. In the introduction, you're talking about writing this with music playing in your own home. There is noise and activity outside. So quiet doesn't necessarily mean silent no, in, in your no. mind. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Quietness is a state of mind. I'm not, I'm not solely talking about the volume levels. I think I write that I've been dancing in, in the middle of a nightclub, which is not silent by any means, but it, there is this sense of almost it being silent when you're in that space. So quietness is about peace and about things feeling right. And it's not a measure of the decibels. That's a perfect analogy. And I I guess just to to wrap this up, I mean, I feel like I've learned a a lot about your, your practice in this chat. But what do you hope people take away from this book? I think everyone who reads it will take something different. The only thing perhaps I would say is that periodically I get messages from clients just like on a Sunday afternoon it will just say this house is beautiful and I think perhaps the book is trying to set that atmosphere and talk about places that are just about beauty. William Smalley in conversation with Monocle's design editor Nick Minise. Quiet Spaces published by Thames and Hudson is available in the UK and will be on shelves next month in the United States. We move to the east of the UK capital, where the Museum of London Docklands has a new exhibition. Fashion City examines the contributions of Jewish Londoners to the city's fashion industry. Visitors can step into the world of a 1960s Carnaby Street boutique, as well as a traditional tailoring workshop from London's East End, all whilst encountering the works of key designers, including David Sassoon and Otto Lucas. Monocle's Steph Chungu went along to find out more. Fashion City, homed at Docklands London Museum, showcases Jewish designers and their rich history with their designs. Worn by legendary acts and royalty alike, from David Bowie to Princess Diana. I'm going to start just here in this space with Sophie Rowling's story. Lead curator, Dr Lucy Whitmore, shows the exhibition in great detail featuring archive pieces and donations from charities, family and friends. I asked her how the concept of the exhibition came to the Museum of London. So Fashion City is the product of a research project started about four and a half years ago and we really wanted to kind of acknowledge and celebrate just how important Jewish Londoners have been to shaping London's fashion industry with involvement kind of across different parts of the of the industries. We have some amazing pieces in the Museum of London Fashion and Textile Collection which is about 24,000 objects but we felt that the stories of Jewish designers and businesses weren't really being pulled to the forefront. So what we've done with the exhibition is really try to kind of celebrate and acknowledge them from across the industry. The themes of tradition and community are all throughout the exhibit. 
not given an impression as a typical museum, but community-led, as Lucy and her team sent a call out for some of the pieces, but received a lot more interest. We did a public call out at the start of this year. That was to look for some very particular pieces in the exhibition, which we didn't end up finding through that call out, but what we did find was a passionate audience who were very excited about this project and got in touch to tell us about their families and their friends and their communities. With the exhibition content, people will notice that there are stories that they may feel are missing. They may be aware of Jewish businesses or designers or retailers that we haven't included. We simply can't fit everything in, but what we have tried to do is pick stories that represent as many different people as possible, different career paths, different industries, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. The reason that it feels like a living story, like a story we should care about, is because real living people do care about it and have taken the time and have so generously contributed their family histories or their feelings about this story with us. It's had sort of official and unofficial channels. Um, some of the objects in the exhibition are um, acquisitions or donations to the museum by family members of the designers. And without fail, those people have been so incredibly generous with sharing their family memories and stories with us. Marginalised communities that migrated alongside the Jewish community are also acknowledged in the display. That was such an important story for us to include because no migrant community in London lives in a vacuum. There is always interactions and, as we've used the words, crossing paths. And we really wanted to make sure that there was a very clear message in the exhibition about the importance of migrant communities, migrants and their descendants to London's fashion industry. So thinking even just in that neighbourhood of Spitalfield about the number of different um, migrant groups who have found a home and who have found work there and have so often been centred on the textile trades. It was very important for us. Fashion City is ordered geographically, from east to west London, with the former showing the migration of the Jewish community to Britain following the Holocaust and the latter showcasing various designers who can be spotted in Mayfair and Regent Street. Both sides show two sides of fashion from each location but are intertwined by tradition and familiarity. The exhibit begins with one designer, Sophie Ravin, with her journey to London and how her career took flight. Sophie arrived in London in 1914 from, uh, from Poland with her family. They established a life for themselves in Whitechapel in the East End and she worked in various different parts of the fashion industry. But we've used the idea of her arrival in 1914 as a way to say, well, where did she arrive? What did it look like? London's Jewish East End community by that point was fairly well established. It was a vibrant and colourful place that had, obviously there were people who had experienced great hardship, but the community was a little better established by this point. There was Yiddish theatre, there was local food companies like catering to the community, there were synagogues. This was an established area for her to, to arrive into. So we've tried to use the idea of her arrival to think about what that area looked like and what she would have experienced. In the West End, dedicated shops showcasing new and fresh designs of time while still maintaining the elegance of tradition. Two designers decided to go the extra mile. The Rava sisters, known for controversy and their outlandish designs at the time, take up space along with works from Sesson and Westwood in the Regent Street makeup. They knew how to get attention, whether to themselves or to their designs. So um, if you look through old newspaper articles about the Rava sisters, there was normally some gimmick, some quirk. They did zebra-patterned dresses. They were doing trousers for women when it was a little bit, you know, a little bit controversial. They were very happy to put themselves at the forefront and to, to cause a bit of a scene. They're very, very interesting women. They were also somewhat problematic 
problematic. They had very hot tempers and one of them did say something very anti-Semitic at an event. So, you know, we, we wanted to show the light and the shade of their story. Um, however, we really feel that they are worth examination or re-examination because they're not as well known within the story of the fashion industry or, or the couture fashion industry but they were very present and they were very much at the forefront of the, of the scene for a while. Tucked Away in a Corner is a shop dedicated to Michael Fish known as Mr Fish the outlandish designer whose famous garments were worn by the likes of Mick Jagger, Muhammad Ali, and of course the star man himself. Mr. Fish's work took over the 60s and 70s, experimenting with cultural patterns and designing flamboyant, intention-grabbing clothing. This includes the iconic dress that was worn by Bowie on his album The Man Who Sold the World, a gold robe with blue patterns. The robe is finished with gold fastenings and is styled on Bowie with a loose opening in contrast to the blue robe the Starman is lying on in the cover. Michael Fish, the designer behind Mr Fish, he believed that men were better suited to skirts and dresses. I mean, he designed all kinds of different garments for men. So he did traditional tailoring, he did suits and shirts, but he always put a twist on it. It was always an unusual fabric, a different colour, a different silhouette. And he did these, these more unusual pieces for the time, which was dress, dresses, caftans, skirts for men. He was drawing influences from all over the world, um, but he was also influenced by liturgical garments, the clothes worn by vicars and priests. And you can actually see that in the design of the pink dress. It almost has like a, a stole on the design. So his influence were, di- were diverse. Um, and he, again, like the Rabba sisters, he knew how to make an impact and he knew how to get a press headline. So he dressed so many celebrities. That was a real like mainstay of his business. But he was also quite happy to put himself in the press as well. You, you often saw pictures of him wearing his own designs and causing a scene. His influences, I think, can really be seen today. You know, men are wearing dresses again and it's fantastic. The exhibit is full of designs with nods to popular culture and history. From iconic coats to bespoke suits to hats by Otto Lucas featured in Vogue. Lucy shares what she hopes people outside the community take from the exhibition. I hope people will reflect and recognise how important a story this is. Often when we see Jewish stories told in museums, they are couched in tragedy. But we really wanted to tell a story that is, it has light and shade, but it's a real celebration. And it's really important to think about the cultural impact that migrants and their descendants have to London, to the fashion industry and beyond. So I really hope that people will come out um, impressed and excited and enthused, but also reflective. For Monocle in East London, I'm Steph Chungu. Thank you, Steph. The exhibition Fashion City is on at the Museum of London Docklands until the 14th of April 2024. Finally, on today's show, we head to Denmark to meet the mind behind some rather fine furniture. Tact is a brand that launched four years ago with sustainability at its core lending it a unique outlook when it comes to designing, building and selling furniture. To learn about the brand's newest addition to their offering, the Spoke Sofa, I caught up with Tact founder Henrik Tordoff Lorenzen in a bustle in Copenhagen, where Tact was showcasing its wares. Henrik began by sharing the genesis of the company and some of the issues he was trying to address by starting up the brand. 
I think we had two observations actually that we wanted to address with uh, with TAC. One was the uh, sustainability angle. In particular, at that point, I was uh, getting a little frustrated by some of the sort of the classic design companies coming out with sort of sustainability collections, and it just ended up being a small part of the fabric was a little bit of recycle this or that, right? And so not really attacking the problem, but just dressing it up. I thought that was not proper, and actually when I looked at some of the statistics of waste furniture in the US and in Europe, it's a really problem. So we had to address it. I think that was one problem. And the other one was the... Danish context, the Danish design was actually born out of a desire back in the mid-centuries, right? The Danish modern movement was born out of a design to create beautiful design for normal people. It's right? so elevating the living standards of people after the Second World War, that sort of moral involvement. That was the designers back then, that was their drive. And I felt all that furniture just ended up being super expensive and luxury items. So could we, with modern distribution methods, go back in time and start living that again, right? Could we combine those two elements of sustainability and affordability again? Tell me a little bit more about this idea of sustainability. There being two ways to look at it, there being the technical side of sustainability, but the aesthetic side as well. Maybe start with technical and how you define that and maybe what the tangible outcome of looking at it. As a starting point, as you say, I think you have to address sustainability for design products by both looking at what you call the technical aspects, longevity, certifications, materials you use, but then also looking at what is, from a design aesthetic point of view, how can you influence that product will last for a long time. If you look at a piece of furniture, it's going to take some energy, going to take some carbon, going to take some resources. So if you can extend that lifetime to 50 years rather than a fast furniture piece that lasts four years, you've gained a lot because all those replacement cycles you're taking out. So it's all about sort of extending the lifetime of the product. We are very much into sort of certifications because it's sort of a third party that sort of validates that what you're saying is actually true. <laughs> so rather than just looking at the good story of reusable plastic or whatever you want to come up, right, is there actually a third party that validates it? We're focusing on, on the material side. We very much use wood. So FSC certifications for wood means that it comes from... Uh, forests that are regenerating and not sort of deforested, right? That you take care of the wildlife and the wood that we're using. We have the EU Eco Label, which is like a full end-to-end certification around the materials and some element of repairability and circularity of the product as well. Mm-hmm. As a company, we're B Corp certified. A certification about how we run our company and how we treat our employees and our suppliers and the local uh, community. And then may we move over to aesthetic sustainability and how you sort of interpret that? The first topic is what to avoid. Many people talk about timeless design and they look at pieces from mid-century, like if you talk about Danish furniture, amazing pieces. They have proven themselves to be timeless in some shape or form. But I don't think it was ever the intention that the designer said, I'm going to create something that's going to be timeless. It's a certain way of killing a good creative process if you brief a designer to create a timeless piece because all the designer can do is look back and say, what have proven to be timeless, and then replicate that. And that is sure going to be creating stuff that is just backward looking and not addressing what real people need now. So that's the thing to avoid, because you would love it to be timeless. That's what you're aiming for, but you can't brief it in, because that's going to kill the creativity and thereby not allow you to create something that could end up being timeless. What is the brief then for the designers you work with? Instead of looking backwards, how do we help them look forwards? We've got directions in terms of that you would probably call Scandinavian design 
ideals. The materials you use, you have to be honest with the materials. So don't take some piece of plastic and put something else on that makes it look different, right? If it, it looks like wood, it's got to be wood, right? And even if, if you look, use cheaper materials like plastic or whatever, show it's plastic, right? So I think that's sort of a design ideal. The other element is actually to be honest about creating a solution for real use. So what is the real use of this product? Embracing with empathy how users are going to use your chair or your table in what situations and really embracing yourself in that situation and then end up creating something that has no superficial styling. I think that's part of our design aesthetic, but still have some kind of personality. And that's hard to judge in the end whether you got personality or not. But there is actually also a stringent approach to that as well. You can look at some of the lines that the piece emanates through the space that it stands in to see whether it's an embracing piece or a sort of confining piece or what it is. So you can actually design a piece of furniture to have some sense of personality. The furniture pieces, they're flat packs, so someone receiving one will assemble it themselves. And I was struck by this idea of that emotional connection in putting something together and it being an enjoyable process rather than one that drives you up the wall. So tell me about why that was key to embed into the process and to sort of maybe extend that lifetime for, for yeah. a piece. It was partly just inspired by you know, my own thoughts when I was working from home and looking at the furniture that I had for 15 years. And I still enjoy looking at some of the lines. When I sit there and look at the lines, I start pondering about things and they start making me think of stuff, right? There was the idea that you can have emotional connection. It's not just about being objectively looking at it, it's about you have a connection around it. That is also what you get tangibly when you are touching a piece of furniture and you embrace it and you feel the quality of the material. The idea of component-based design has a real good reason from a sustainability point of view, but can't we use that as a strength in the emotional connection between the user and, and the piece? that you touch it and you put it together and you make sure that even those hidden connections that you don't see afterwards, you're just like, wow, that was, that was neatly thought through and it clicks in a nice way and it's like, hmm, right? Thereby, afterwards, you feel like, oh, I got a different feel for my furniture now compared to just pulling it out of a cardboard box and taking off the packaging materials. I suppose also that way there's nowhere to hide. They're going to examine every element, every piece, every screw, the weight of everything. There's exactly. nowhere to hide. Exactly, exactly. We looked a lot at other manufacturers, what they do, right? And uh, what we would think if we were getting a piece of furniture like that. Also were inspired by, like our design director, who's spent most of his time being professor at the Royal Danish Academy, preparing Danish uh, furniture architects and educating them. He's got this thing, but he also always turns chairs around and looks at what, what they look underneath, right? That's an indication of good quality and good craftsmanship. With the component-based design, there is that ability to swap in pieces, to almost be continually renewing it rather than starting from scratch each time. Tell me about the newest sofa that's come out. Tell me a bit about that jump from maybe a solid piece to one that's incorporating a bit of upholstery. Yes, yes, so we recently launched our first sofa, spoke sofa, and we've actually been working on this for three years, and so it's been quite an effort. And every time we go into a new category of product like a sofa, we ask ourselves whether we have any credible new sustainable approach to this category and also whether we can launch it at a reasonable price so normal people can buy it. So that's what we thought we could actually do here. When you look at sofas, most sofas are actually just fully wrapped pieces with the upholstery all over, stapled together underneath and under that 
you've got this um, structure of uh, plywood and different types of materials all glued and uh, stapled together. That's a big problem from a sustainability point of view because all you can do if there's a stain on the f- fabric is throw the whole thing away <laughs> and buy a new one, right? It doesn't make any sense. We took the sofa apart and said, to be able to have something that you could repair yourself, you've got to have an exposed structure that you sit on, right? That's why it has this uh, oak or beech exposed structure that has these very nice crafted details around it. The crafted details also comes because you are putting things together yourself. So all these connection has to be nice looking and good looking. And then pillows for the back and the seat provide the cushioning of the experience. But in the end, it actually ended up being a sofa that's just made out of five pieces of material. And all these materials can be separated in the end for two reasons. One is in the far future, if someone wants to actually discard the sofa, they can separate it into polyester, a foam, oak wood, so proper upcycling of what you call monomaterials, right? And the other purpose, of course, is you can repair it. So one of the things that actually took us quite a while is figuring out an upholstery design where you could actually take off the upholstery from the foam and wash it at 40 degrees and put it back on. <laughs> it's, it's a super tangible thing, but it's probably what most people end up being a little frustrated with a sofa. It looks stained, starts to look dated after a little while, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful you could just take it off and wash and put it back on? And even if you don't like the color in 10 years or whatever, you can just buy the upholstery and put that on and you've got a new sofa. Something I found interesting was the business model and having that very direct relationship with um, customers and getting that feedback and being able to learn from that continual cycle. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to operate in that way and, I guess, the benefits of doing so. It started probably from a pricing point of view, right? Because if you um, create a chair that looks nice underneath and it's nice to put together, it's certainly not going to be cheaper. It's going to be more expensive, right? And so if you want to create something that can replace some other stuff, right, you've got to create something that, that people can afford. When we look at the, what we call the value chains or who are all the people that gets involved from manufacturing to actually end user having it, the normal chain is like many different chains, like retailers and distributors and resellers and what have you, that all needs to earn money, of course, for the work they do. We could actually get a reasonable price by cutting out that and then offering the products direct to our users, which, of course, is a well-known business model, but something we actually bettered on now people would be willing, even for larger pieces of furniture, to have that relationship. That allowed us to take all these margins off and offer better pricing. But also what it allowed us is that actually now we know who has our products. We actually sometimes reach out to early customers and ask about, so what was the experience of receiving your table? And if they want, right, we don't force them, but if they want to engage, some of them take pictures of what the packaging looks like when it arrived, or I had a hard time putting this together. And we can immediately go back and change that. And it's super delightful compared to a normal model where you maybe have sold off 1,000 products to different retailers. Half a year later, you would have something and you have to redo all these products. Here, we just we go back and fix it and get it done, right? It's just a pleasure. My thanks to Henrik Torda Florensen there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Maylee Evans. Nick will be back in the host's chair next week with some more design gems. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>